Well, this is our concluding unscientific postscript talk. This is the last talk on uh, loving kindness, and we have 11 benefits to get through. <laughs> now, the title I just gave it is a very interesting title. It's from uh, a very important uh, philosopher, Kierkegaard. Some of you, perhaps, you get extra points if you recognize the, the title. And that is kind of a rejection of um, too much need for some approval from science, concluding unscientific postscript. And what we find is that this uh, emotion, this structure of friendliness and goodwill is something out of the domain, really, of science. They're, I guess in these days they're, they're doing brain scans and so forth on monks. And I don't know how much they'll find out about this, but we have to get on with living. We can't wait for science to confirm whether we're, are we having fun yet. <laughs> you shouldn't have to ask science if uh, certain things are legitimate. This loving-kindness process will self-confirm. You will know. It will confirm itself. You won't have to ask anybody else. And by the way, if you have to ask anybody else, it's you're probably not having meta yet. So here are some of the kind of effects, and this will help you tie in some of your... make some connections that you may not have made before. And I think modern psychology also could benefit from these things because they're always, they're dealing with this as well, and even uh, medicine. And the first benefit is that one sleeps well. And to sleep well means that you go to sleep in a timely fashion and that you get true uh, refreshment from this. And now this is a way of checking up on how your life is going. This is a state of consciousness, or this sleep is like a form of uh, a range of consciousness. And it should be refreshing, and it should come to you easily. And you see when your life, if your values in life are incorrect, your sleep structure will tell you. And of course, it's famous in literature as well. Artists really understand this. You'll see in Shakespeare all of the times when, when any of his characters aren't sleeping well, it's because they've been up to much mischief. They've, they've done something that troubles their conscience and therefore they cannot sleep. Now, you don't have to be a bank robber or a murderer in order to not get a good night's sleep. There's all kinds of things. So there's... And of course, one of them particularly is just fear and anxiety, nervousness, worry, and excessive demands that you place on yourself. The world, of course, the modern world can, if you're in, the, in a certain situation, can place all kinds of inordinate demands on you, but you also are cooperating with this. And uh, we saw one of the earlier... Um, aspirations in the in the metta sutta was to be of 
few burdens, not, not to be burdened by duties. And I spent quite a bit of time talking about that particular apakicho. This is translated in a half a dozen different ways and I, I didn't find any of them satisfactory. And it's really this, that one should not be feel obliged to be simply busy and kind of have the virtue of busyness. It's not a virtue. And if you want to cultivate this, these sublime states of mind, then one has to set aside simply being busy for the sake of being busy and also as a way of dodging your own anxiety and your failure to have come up with a vision of life. And so this is all tying into this ability to sleep well. This type of mind that won't shut down, keeps rehearsing things, going through things. Uh, this is what disturbs the mind. Unfinished business from the day. Why is the business unfinished? And it's because the wrong view of life. So this is something I give a, a lot of... Um, I give advice to a lot of people about when they say they have difficulty sleeping and so forth. And one of them is no thinking allowed between 9 p.m. <laughs> and 9 a.m., a good 12 hours. Uh, you, you have to stop doing your planning and thinking and rehearsing of the day in order to sleep. And what happens when you sleep, and especially if you wake up at a, you know, one in the morning or two in the morning, or if you can't get to sleep at two in the morning, and you're still, you still think you have to work out some problems, that is the worst possible time to work out anything. Your IQ has diminished by at least 30 points. You are now officially an idiot. And you are also a paranoid idiot. <laughs> You are now uh, exaggerating the fears and the worries because the next day when you've had coffee and breakfast and the light is around, you, you see things differently. You think, what was that about? Like I was really, it was hard, you know. It was about the fact that you were talking to yourself at the wrong time. In fact, in a sense, you're talking to somebody else and that, that person that you're talking to at two in the morning is not very smart and is and has no very little judgment as well. So they can't give appropriate weight to anything. They can't see things in context. So this is why it's very important to learn to stop thinking. Now you have to practice this. You have to commit to this and you have to train yourself to this because you're going to wake up at two in the morning as usual. And again, you're only half your, half your wits are about you. And so you're easily going to forget your, that the advice is don't think about it now. This is not the time to think about it. You'll just get distorted ideas fed back to you. And so you have to do some very strong practice ahead of time so that you, the voice of reason, the voice of clarity, the voice of peace, the voice of courage even, is established during the day. And it just informs you at that time to not, deal with it now. Don't deal with it. Go to sleep. Let go. Even though you feel like you must deal with it. So this is the nature of things. This is also a samadhi practice. So this is learning to 
interrupt thought processes. Normally we don't do this, but this is a very valuable um, trick to learn. Interrupt, rudely interrupt your thought processes. Dissolve problems before you solve them. Many problems are, are simply not to be solved at all. They're the product of uh, your mind in a certain unwholesome condition. And so it's not, it's not good to humor your mind or go along with it. It's better to just stop it, turn to the cessation of problem solving, and try silence for a while or some other form of serenity practice, even chanting. And then you will find out that a lot of the problems that you thought you had, you didn't have, that they've been dissolved. And so this is also the function of sleep is to dissolve things. So don't fight with sleep. It's, it has a, a very therapeutic and important role. So one sleeps in, an, in a systematic and orderly fashion, welcomes sleep in and doesn't interrupt it. So this is the, one of the benefits of loving kindness. You're, you're actually being very kind to yourself and giving yourself as you would anybody else an opportunity to sleep. Humans just simply don't do well if they can't sleep properly. Everything else starts to fragment and fall apart. If you do this, the second benefit is that you wake up well. In other words, you wake up well because you had some sleep. And why? what happens when you have some sleep? You do not have nightmares, bad dreams, terror, night terrors, as they call it. So that's the third benefit. One does not have these night terrors. And that's also that the loving kindness is carrying right into the deep unconscious mind. And what, because loving kindness is the opposite of terror. It's safety, isn't it? So that's one of the, that's basically the definition that the Buddha gives for metta. Metta, uh, friendliness, is that the wish for safety, that may all beings be well and safe, nothing, no harm come to them. So you, uh, this is, uh, there's another word called ahimsa, which is non-harm. So if you want to conduct yourself according to the qualities of the Buddha in this world, you are somebody who is no threat to anybody, no being fears you, because you, you do not, uh, you have no sense of the possibility of harming any being. You, you're not, at least intentionally. So this is uh, this is to do with metta. So you 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 it's called unilateral disarmament. You disarm, you put down the weapons, and beings do not fear you. So in return, what do you get? You get a sense of safety yourself. Because if you can do this for others, you can do it for yourself. And you know, it's not good to harass any being, is it? Not good to provoke fear in any being. So why would you do it to yourself? So you, you give up this, you understand because you're wise and kindly, you, you resist the idea of provoking any kind of fear in yourself. Anxiety, fear, worry. Uh, because those are not something you would provoke in anybody else, and why would you do it to yourself? If you do this at the conscious level, it will seep down and pervade 
the mind at night as well. And this is one way you can tell. You sometimes in the day you're not too sure. Let, people are walking around in a kind of a normalized state of anxiety, worry, and, and also a, a level of ill will, which they may not be aware of. You only become aware of this when you can get out of it. Otherwise, you don't know what anybody's talking about. This happens sometimes. People go to psychiatrists or psychologists, and they have this issue and that issue, and the psychologist say, you know, you're, you're angry. And they say, I am? <laughs> yeah, you're angry. You don't know you're angry because you're angry all the time. And it can be even under the surface. You, you might, people might report that you're very mild type of character, but under the surface, perhaps even hidden from you yourself, is this anger, irritability, aversion. So you have to, how are you going to find out about that? It's by going to, a, taking a 10-day meta course and, and letting the, the, the voice of another talk you out of it talk you out of anger but towards something else because it's not merely the absence of anger that's good enough that's wonderful if you can have non-ill will that's wonderful you're already halfway there but metta is actually a very positive state of mind so you got to seek any trick you can to trick yourself into this experience so that you you understand oh and it's a real revelation people People don't understand because it's just a lifetime of habit structure. It's only when they can step out of it from time to time that they, they recognize, oh, I've been on the wrong track my whole life. And it's a revelation. It's a beautiful thing as well. Sometimes one wishes one had learned this earlier in life, but it's never too late. So this is, uh, there's so much to uh, benefit from a good night's sleep, and the transformation of, uh, of fear into safety, in a sense. Uh, so one becomes affectionate to human beings. That's pretty obvious that one who is, uh, you know, will put, uh, protects you, in other words, would never uh, do anything to harm you. You feel comfortable around that person. And not only people, but other beings as well. So one becomes affectionate to human beings because they can hear in your voice, they can see in the demeanor of your physical movements, they can see it in the micro expressions on your face, and they can hear what you have to say. They feel unthreatened by you. And so they instantly, or if they have the capacity for this, they they feel affection, so they they like the your presence. Uh, it's it's uplifting for them. It's at least not threatening. And you know, it's very very hard to be around people who are threatening all the time. The opposite of that is people who are who either want to you know take advantage of you, get something from you, or they they want to harm you. That's a very draining experience to be around. So this is one of the benefits is that the beings around you experience affection for you if you cultivate this. One becomes affectionate to non-human beings. Now, non-human beings are plentiful. 
You see them everywhere, don't you? Dogs, cats, <laughs> uh, everything. And you can, uh, you, this is also an enjoyable thing. You see how many people actually prefer to spend their time with animals than humans. Animals uh, don't have complex ideas resisting this. It only takes them a while to figure out you're not a threat. And then they become very affectionate. The, the dog and a cat become very loyal, very affectionate. And they can, and that's, but the higher animals can intuit this. And there are many uh, higher animals uh, that are quite sophisticated. And you see this also, I think it's a, a fairly modern phenomenon that, uh, that people are training, you know, what were considered dangerous wild animals and so forth. They're, if they get them early enough and train them in the right way, then they, they turn out to be quite capable of affection. And so we see, and this is what the Buddha had said, and, and I'll remember that the previous sutta, the metta sutta was for monks to go into the forest unprotected and that their only protection was this loving kindness against all of these aggressive animals. So if, you, you know, if you're gonna be in that environment long and without protection, then you really need to work on that Everything about how you move, what you say, has to be cultivated. One of the tricks, I, I, I've been around bears a lot, you know, wild, well, bears and other things, but especially in Canada, not in this, not so much in the tropics. The, there are bears even in the Thai forest, it's kind of a small type of bear, but um, in Canada, <laughs> they're, in certain areas, they're more common than dogs. One of the tricks I learned was when you have a bear around, name it. Give it a nice name, Bobby or Priscilla or anything, and just keep talking about Priscilla and Bobby and everything. So, Because what happens is you step out and you're just walking along and suddenly you walk into the bear. <laughs> and if you're meeting this animal, having established, at least in your mind, a kind of familiarity and a uh, almost like a like a person, you, you won't react in an unsuitable way. You will remain calm and you also will intuitively do the right thing that doesn't provoke kind of sense of panic in the, in the bear because that, that's what happens is that <laughs> the bear sees you as a, an aggressor or a competitor for their food or something. And if you act the wrong way, if you wave your hands or shout or or even run, that's, that's kind of exciting and provokes aggression. So I have had a few very, very close encounters with bears and I'm really very happy that I have worked ahead of time on this and um, named them <laughs> because when you walk around a bush and there you're three feet from Priscilla, <laughs> hello Priscilla, I'll be on my way now. <laughs> Uh, so far it's worked. I have not had any um, violent encounters with bears, but I've had dozens of encounters with bears. <laughs> the deities protect one. Now here's, we see whether your cosmology allows you to admit deities, uh, that is 
beings, which are perhaps not apparent to everybody, but that pervade some other dimension of being, that you somehow are subtly in, in contact with in some way or have interactions with. And so, of course, we're in the modern world. At the time of the Buddha, I think everybody certainly acknowledged the possibilities of it and certain spiritual type cultures and countries are completely immersed and living on a daily basis with the presence of these kind of deities. Uh, higher beings, angelic beings, uh, perhaps non-visible, but seem to be visible to some at some times, etc. In a way, make up of it what you will, but those beings, since they are also non-harmful, they recognize your vibe. They are actually appreciative of your own divine uh, projections. You know, they also will be sensitive to it. As a person who is sensitive, who is full of loving kindness, recognize another being with loving kindness and appreciates them. In fact, you know, a human can be more adept at loving kindness than a an angel. <laughs> an angel or a deva, a shining one, illuminated being from some beautiful dimension. The Buddha certainly had many visits from these beings, or as at least that he reports. And we hear reports of this up to in the modern times from monks and nuns and indeed lay people having visits. But who do the devas visit? Who do the deities visit? Not people who are crude in their, in their emotional structures. Why would they? They have no interest in that. Only people who are advanced and who are at virtuosic levels. So one makes the journey to visit them. As, as in the modern times, uh, you see people making journeys to visit famous monks around the world or uh, saints in various places, you'll see them come halfway around the world to some obscure, and that, that saint may be living in a very impoverished or humble way, but people with luminous minds can see them halfway across the world and will make the journeys. So you see uh, lots of people journeying to see Mother Teresa in Calcutta. Now, you would not want to go normally, even as a tourist, to Calcutta, <laughs> especially in the 50s and 60s, one of the dark, terrible places on the planet. But if there is a saint there, then you will come to visit. And who will come to visit? Will crude people come to visit? No. The, the sophisticated, the higher beings will be making the journey. Neither fire nor weapons nor poisons, uh, sorry, fire, poisons, or weapons harm one. Uh, this is, um, we can take it literally uh, that there's some defense, you know, protective element to uh, loving kindness, but basically when you get this kind of fire, poisons, and weapons, uh, it lines up very well with greed, hatred, and delusion. The fires of greed and the poisons of hatred and the uh, weapons of 
delusions. So you will be protected from greed, hatred, and delusion, both in your system, which are, are terrible things. They're, they are poisonous, very painful, cutting experiences. And if you can get past those, then you will be unharmed by your own inner uh, structures of, uh, that are based on greed, hatred, and delusion. You'll also be protected from the, the greed, hatred, and delusion of others. Whether you will actually um, survive a fire or not is another matter, but you will not at least be encompassed by fear in the midst of this. So people experience uh, difficult, traumatic situations, including wars and um, natural disasters, terrible things in different ways. And so the actual physical world is full of dangers and the, and the human world is full of weapons and poisons and so forth. And, and if you have this clarity of consciousness, this loving kindness, then you will be protected from it in terms of your inner states. And that is all that matters. We, nobody ultimately gets out alive. And you see some of these examples, you see in descriptions of what went on in the concentration camps in Germany and so forth of individuals who are transcendent of the experience. And you see this in cases of violence and war and so forth, that certain people are transcendently well in the midst of this. They are not desperately attached to this existence or even the preservation of their body and that allows them to be free in the midst of this. One's mind is easily calmed and this is how loving kindness will give you uh, much better access to uh, meditations like breath meditation or jhana meditation. It will allow you to get there because the hindrances have been reduced. And so this is uh, the impediments to this. So uh, if you're having trouble with, with things like breath meditation or any type of concentration, even doing your tax reports, <laughs> stop, cultivate your loving kindness, and then you'll go back, you'll be able to sustain concentration and you'll be able to easily focus on what you're doing. One's countenance is serene. Um, if you have loving kindness, you'll be as beautiful as it is possible for you to be. It won't turn you into a supermodel, over, <laughs> but there are things that are more beautiful than supermodels. Uh, supermodels may have a blankness behind their eyes or something like that. It's not smooth skin and even features are, is not what is beauty. Uh, there's something much deeper and uh, it is based on loving kindness. And so your face, the micro muscles and expressions of your face will be changed by loving kindness. And you'll see this. People, once they encounter this, they, their appearance becomes different. Yeah, marvelous. One dies without confusion. Now that's a real Benny. <laughs> uh, you, uh, people who work in hospices see people die in all kinds of conditions and states. And primarily fear and confusion happens. So what is the best thing you can do? 
uh, during life is one of the best preparations you can make for, for death is to practice loving kindness. And it will come to your aid at the time. Uh, now, you get a, a little miniature experience of this in sleep. So sleep is a kind of a little facsimile of death. So if you cannot sleep and be without dreams, then your, your confusion comes to you. So at the time of death also. So you, you need to practice this deeply. Um, you need to have it uh, embedded in your, in your structure of emotional structures, your habit structures, so that at the time of great, uh, great crisis, it comes to you at that time. Beyond that, if one fails to attain Nibbana, one is reborn in the higher heavens. So this is the final 11th benefit. And so you see that the Buddha, in, in describing metta, he doesn't isolate it from the Eightfold Path. He, he always says that under no circumstances does he ever speak in praise of samsara. Even the highest heavenly conditions are not good enough for the Buddha. You must attain full liberation. Metta can get you a long, long ways. But if it's not within the context of the Eightfold Path, with the various visions that you're supposed to have, envisioning your clarity of vision, then it won't do its final work, but it will leave you in the higher heavens. So sometimes it's hard to get motivation. If, if you're steeped in loving kindness, life gets very good. Life improves in every way possible for it to improve. And sometimes it reduces your, your ambition to uh, proceed to Nibbana. You think, well, you know, existence is not so bad. Uh, but the Buddha is asking you to always saying, you know, don't, don't let it, f don't be fooled. All conditions come to an end. Anything that is of the nature to arise also is the nature to cease. And this is the, the highest requirement of wisdom. So metta is, is a vastly beneficial condition, but must also help at the service or should help at the service of full enlightenment as well. So that is the um, concluding unscientific postscript of the last talk, and all eight of these talks are really outside the boundaries of modern technology and science and uh, are of the essence of what it is to be alive and human. It was true at the time of the Buddha. It's true now. It will always be true. It's a timeless truth. There's a, there's a word that the Buddha uses, akaliko, and um, we might say eternal. Kaliko is uh, time. Akaliko is without time. So this is a, these are timeless truths. They, they operate at all times and places where there are living beings. 
this is the nature of the, the law of the universe. So I leave these uh, talks for your serenity, your friendliness, and your warmth in the midst of winter.